this morning as we begin, just um, want to say welcome. If you're new to us, we've been going through the book of Romans, and um, we're in chapter 5 today. And uh, Romans chapter 5, you're going to open to there and also open to Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles in print or on your phone, uh, get ready for those two passages. We're going to kind of hang out there for a bit this morning. Um, as I was going through uh, studying this passage this morning, uh, Romans 5, I knew this was coming. I just didn't know, like, I didn't know it was, like, going to be this, this difficult. Um, and I was, I was reading through guys who study the Bible and say, hey, look, you want to think about it. They call them you know, books or commentaries on the Bible. And one after another said, this is probably one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. And, and I, I opened one, and they said that, and then the next one. And then by the third one, I was just like, I'm in deep trouble. One of my, my back's hurting this week. I think I may have to opt out or something. And, um, and then I thought, no, I know what I'll do. I'll call Norm, because if, if, if I'm going to go down, I'm going to take somebody with me. So uh, great, great. Norm is our resident theologian, and he has uh, uh, been a help to me over the years, keeping me from preaching heresy. Um, so uh, he, he's a great brother. He's also the guy who teaches our TTP class, which is our theology class. Shameless plug Shameless is coming. Plug. September 11th. September 11th. Yep. What's the topics this? Uh... Uh, so we've got two of them. We've got humanity and sin. Yeah. We're doing today. And we have bibliology and hermeneutics. The, the Bible and interpretation. There we go. So that's. <laughs> yeah, it's, it seems way more difficult than what it is. Like yeah. those are big $10 yeah, those, words. Those are, those are big words that we yeah. break down over 10 weeks. So. so you'll get an idea of what he's going to be talking about, humanity and sin, because that's this message this morning. Um, and we're just going to kind of touch on it briefly. Um, but what happens is when we get into Romans, specifically Romans 5, verse 12, Paul says this. He says, therefore, since sin came into this world through man and death through sin, so... Death has come to all people because all have sinned. He goes on to say later on in chapter 5, verse, I think, 18, he says, Therefore, just as through one act of unrighteousness condemnation has come, so also through the act of one or one act, righteous act justification has come that brings life to all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many are made righteous. So you may be sitting there going, oh, you know, what are you talking about, Scott? Here, here's the questions that come out of this passage, and this is what makes it so difficult. So, and tell me if you haven't, I mean, tell me, I, I would imagine most of us have heard at some point a question like this in our life if we follow Christ for any length of time. So are you telling me that just because of one person, everyone else in the world is guilty? One person and everyone else's eternal destiny is altered. You're telling me from one person, one act that happened way back there, you're telling me that this baby is what? Guilty? Is, is what? Has a sin nature? This baby? And that's why we have Norm on the stage. <laughs> right? That's what comes out of this passage. This is a worldview verse. It is huge. 
So on a Sunday morning, sometimes we have more, we have messages that talk more about the heart, talk more about application. This is one that is a cognitive. This is one where you have to actually get out a fork and a knife and and pull up to the table because this is a big steak, right? This one is going to take some time to cut, to chew, to figure out, all right? So hang with us as we go through this, um, because this one is going to require us to think theologically. Now, let's go back to Genesis, and let's just read the story, because when you read the story, it helps frame where Paul is coming from. So Genesis chapter 2, God has finished creating the world, animals, everything. All that's left to create is Eve, but he's created Adam, and he puts him in the garden. We pick up the story, chapter 2, I think around verse 17. Um, Let me uh, turn over there real quick. He says this, actually, rather in verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, any tree. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, that just seems innocuous, die. And then somehow we get over to Paul, which is like, oh, like, you mean seriously die? Like, like this is way bigger than just three-letter word die. Like, this is huge die. Goes on, he creates Eve. They're in the garden. Everything's going good. Fast forward to chapter 3. Serpent comes, tempts Eve. Hey, this fruit is good. You can become like God. God doesn't want that. It's a big secret kind of thing. Eve says, that sounds good. Tasty. She eats it, gives it to Abner, who's most likely standing right there. Adam's like, hmm, yes, I'll take it. Eats it. We pick up the story. Uh Uh-oh, things aren't good. As soon as they ate it, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. Uh-oh, uh-oh, and they, they hid from the Lord. Which, why would you ever hide from the Lord God? Right? They hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called out to him, where are you? As if he didn't know. Adam answers, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And he, the Lord God, said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And then that goes down. Everybody passes the buck. Adam says, well, she made me do it. And then she says, well, the serpent made me do it. And then what you see, the rest of Genesis is God's judgment on Satan, and then God's judgment on women, and then God's judgment on Adam. And we get done with the story, and it doesn't seem like that big of a deal and then you watch human history progress and you realize oh wow this is huge and what happens here is a is an idea of solidarity or representation that's what's introduced here that nobody knows this god comes and and reveals and starts talking to paul and says hey this is this piece of it but It happens throughout the history of God's people, this idea of representation. We've been talking about Abraham in a positive sense. Abraham was this one person that ended up representing entire Israel. And because of one man, everybody's blessed. And everybody's like, I'm all over representation. That's a great thing. Sign me up, right? Then you get 
farther down the road, you get into Joshua. Achan's this one guy. This is just a couple stories. Achan, uh, Israel's, you know, taking over the land. God says, any plunder I want, the top, the best is for me. Then you can, eyes can split out the rest. Achan says, nah, I don't like that. I like this shiny little thing over here called gold and some clothes. And he puts them and hides them in the floor of his tent. Israel goes out to fight. And then a whole boatload of people are killed Israel loses really bad. Joshua is ticked off at God. Like, what are you doing? You promise. You said all this. And listen to what God says. It's in Joshua chapter 7. Listen how many times. It's, it's one guy who sins, right? And yet God says this word, the plural, they, you all. Listen to this. One verse. Listen how many times God says this. Israel has sinned says God. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them, them with their own possessions. Nine times in one verse, God says one man represented the entire nation. Y'all sinned, even though it was one man. Solidarity. Paul comes along and he he comes in, he starts to explain, well, how did this all happen? How did sin start in this world? How did death come? And he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through death, or just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so also death has come to all people because all have sinned. Solidarity, representation. It's a major world view, like huge, has drastic implications. And it brings all kinds of questions. And throughout church history, there has been this, this effort to explain and understand what this means. And this morning, what we want to do, because it, it creates all kinds of questions, and it creates all kinds of bad thinking and good thinking, we want to just slow this down and say, okay, hey, look. Uh, and I've asked Norm, Norm, could you just come and explain church history and the position on this? Because there's been wars fought on this verse. And, and Christians are still, like, shooting each other over this verse. Christians, right? So, yeah. um, and I know some of you are like, all right, you're sitting back, you got your popcorn. And you're like, all right, preacher boy, let's see you do your thing. So I'm going to ask Norm to do this, and I'm just going to sit Great. back and eat my popcorn. And, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the transition was a lot easier in the first service. Um, you know, I was able to stare out into a, a group of adults and, and, you know, know that I'm going to talk to them about sin. And then Scott did that introduction about babies. And I see Grant and Katie back there with their beautiful baby. And I know they're just going, yeah, tell me how guilty my child is. So that's, uh, that's great. <laughs> no, it's good. But this is, this is a very important topic. Romans 5.12 is serious. It's foundational. It's difficult. Um, it has been fought over for 2,000 years. And we're going to uh, discuss it today. But before we get there, let's, let's, ask, uh, let's pray to God uh, for him to be involved. Father, what, what an incredible opportunity to speak on something, uh, a topic like this about sin and, and sin nature and, and where it came from and what impact it is on the same Sunday where we have communion where we come together and reflect on your body broken and your blood shed for us and the impact that had. Fathers, as this message comes forth, let it, uh, let it not be based on agenda or based on any words of preparation on our own. Let it just be your words and your truth that comes forward. Amen. So 
This topic, big questions, difficult questions. The subject, it's not new. It's been around for a long time. Um, and the church has been discussing it for a long time. But it hasn't always been a point of controversy or discussion or debate. In fact, if we look at the early church, we go back to the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. It's discussed. You've got church fathers like Origen and Tertullian and Irenaeus and a, a bunch of really important guys who are writing church doctrine, and they're talking about this concept of original sin and what happened with Adam and what the effect is on us. But it's not really a point of contention or controversy in most of their writings. In fact, it's kind of like Paul does here. It's, it's an establishment of a concept leading to other things, bigger things, like, like uh, what Christ did for us in that gift. So there's almost this idea of uh, unity within the concept in the early church, unity on what original sin was and what the impact was. And the church doesn't really make an official statement on it um, for the first couple hundred years. There's not doctrine written. There's not an official statement on what original sin is. Because like so many things in the church, we don't, the church doesn't establish something or write doctrine or, or uh, have a council, right, put creeds together on concepts unless it's drawn to it, unless there's a debate, unless there's a division, unless there's controversy. That's what typically happens. And that's what happened with this particular subject as well in the fifth century. So let me set the scene for you a little bit. It's the early 400s, it's the early fifth century, and Christianity is a legal religion throughout the Roman Empire, and there's, there's doctrine being developed and church fathers writing all over the place about lots of different subjects. There's, uh, there, there's people preaching the word and teaching the word, and there's bishops, and there's heads of church, and there's monks, and, and you know, there's all this development going on, and one of these uh, uh, big heads of the church at this time is Augustine, and he is a bishop uh, of a church in North Africa. And he's writing all kinds of things and developing doctrine. And he writes this, he pens this prayer, that simple prayer, praying to God says, Grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. God, grant what you command and command what you would desire. Very short prayer, very honest prayer, seeking the heart and the will of God. And this prayer is... It's read in the church, and it's consumed by this other uh, leader in the church, a British monk named Pelagius. And he reads this prayer, and it brings him to his feet. He gets incited by this prayer, angered by this prayer. And it would eventually kick off the greatest controversy, or one of the greatest controversies in the history of our church. You see, he reads this prayer, and he's not so upset with the second part, the command what thou dost desire. He's God. God's the creator of the universe. He's all-powerful, all-sovereign. So if God desires something, he can command it. No issues there. It's the first part of the prayer he takes issue with, this idea of grant what thou would command. God, grant what you command. Now, if you're sitting there listening to this, it may be, what's the big deal, right? We want God to grant what he commands. The issue Pelagius has is, if we are God's creation and we are to be obedient to God and obey God, why would he have to grant something extra, something special to us in order to be obedient and obey his command? If God commands something, we should, in our state that we're at, our created state, the state we're born into, if we're the creation who's to be obedient and God commands us to do something, we should be able to do it. In fact, he would go so far as to say, if God commands us to do something, 
and we're not able to do it without his interaction, why would he command that? That doesn't sound like God. Why would God command you to do something you are unable to do? And that's what sparks the controversy and the debate that would extend itself into the origination of sin, the implication of Adam, the fall of man, the free will debate, predestination, and it goes on and on from there. And that's what we're going to get to today because eventually and ultimately it finds its root in how we interpret Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 12. Now, we thought about a lot of different ways to do this, uh, to, to discuss this particular topic because there's people very passionately on many different sides of this. I, I teach the theology class on this, and I know there's people very passionate on many different sides of this. In fact, a lot of us in the, that are sitting out here right now are going to find that you're on one side or another, and very passionately, or maybe you're not sure, but you find yourself on one side or another of this debate. And so rather than try to pull in backgrounds and, and, and put, you know, draw lines here, what we thought we'd do is provide a survey of the church history. What are the major positions the church has taken where do they stand on the issues of uh, man, sin, the origination of sin, free will, and what are the impacts? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at three positions, historical positions of the church. We're going to look at Pelagianism, Augustinianism, or Calvinism, and we're going to look at Arminianism. Big words, but we'll get there. Uh, the first one is with Pelagius himself. That's where we're going to start. That's where this controversy starts. And Pelagianism, if you really want to understand Pelagianism and what Pelagius' issue was, you have to understand this first concept. It's the concept that man is inherently good. Man is inherently good. That is huge. It's fundamental. It's foundational. It's a div dividing point between Pelagius and his contemporaries. You see, to understand what it means that man is inherently good, it means that you, I, Scott, all of us, sense Adam, when we are born, if we're inherently good, we're born into that same state in nature that Adam was before the fall. We are born good. We are born sinless. We are born blameless. We are born innocent. That's the state we're born into. All of us, since Adam, even after Adam's transgression in the fall. That's what it means to be born inherently good. And as such, if we're born inherently good, the implication there is that the fall, Adam's sin, did not bring condemnation onto anyone but Adam himself. The guilt is not passed onto anybody but Adam himself. It was Adam's sin, Adam's tr transgression. He's accountable for it himself. We are not accountable for it. We are not corrupted by it. That's the, that's the stance of Pelagianism. Man is good. We are born into goodness, and the fall did not condemn us. The foundation of Pelagianism. And what that means, the impact of that is, it has a huge impact on our will. We use this concept, the disposition of the will. Basically, our ability to choose good versus evil. And so man being ultimately good and not corrupted, you're going to see up here this, this scale. It's a scale that shows the weight of good and evil, okay? And that's the disposition of our will. Are we able to choose evil and good equally? Are we, do we have a tendency or do we lean? Are we weighted towards one versus another? And Pelagius had this very high view of man's free will, and he... he uh, based his theology on the fact that for man to truly have free will, the disposition could not be affected by the fall. We have to be born 
good. This scale has to be even, which means that we have the ability to choose evil and choose sin. But we also have the ability on our own without God granting us anything else. We have the ability to choose good. We have the ability to choose both equally. Pelagius looks at our disposition and Augustine's position that he, God would have to grant us something, in this case, grace, in order for us to choose good. He looks at it and says, if you have a sinful disposition, if we're born with a sinful disposition, this scales off balance, and we never truly have free will. We look back for him at Adam. So if that's the case, if we're all born, we're not responsible for the transgressions of Adam. If we're all born good, and we can choose good or evil equally, Without any interaction or intervention between God, what role did Adam play in this whole thing, if any? Or was it just Adam on his own? No effect to the rest of humanity. And Pelagius would say, no, the only effect he had was Adam gave us an example. And it was a bad example. In fact, if we sin, it's not because we're sinful. It's he sinned because of the bad example Adam gave to us. That was the stance and position of Pelagius. In fact, when it comes back to Romans 5, chapter 12, and you read this, Scott talked about our corporate solidarity with Adam, that we are one, this, this solidarity there, and that he represented us all. Pelagius would read Romans chapter 5, verse 12, as not a position of solidarity, but an individual position. That it's only our individual sin that we are responsible for, or convicted of, or guilty of, our individual sin alone. That's the, 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 the uh, overarching concept of Pelagianism. Ultimately, Pelagianism was brought before the Council of Carthage, and it was condemned as heresy. Um, and the reason it was is because if we look at these scales, and if you, are, you and I and all of us are truly born sinless, blameless, we're not, with no guilt, and we have the true ability to always choose good because the scales are balanced, what need do we have of a redeemer? What need is there of Jesus Christ? And so that Pelagianism was ultimately um, convicted as heresy in the early church. The second position on this is that of his contemporary. The other side of this argument is Augustine. Augustine has a similar foundational concept that you guys have to get. Pelagius said that man is inherently good. Augustine comes at the position that man is inherently corrupt. We are corrupt. It's who we are. It's part of our being, our nature. We use this term, the fall. You guys have heard of the fall, right? It's this concept of original sin and what happened, the effects of Adam's sin, the fall. To really understand Augustine's position, we need to step back and not brush by that concept of the fall. You need to understand what it means. If I were to ask you guys, to, what does it look like to fall? We'd all have this same, it might look differently, but it's the same concept. To fall means to, to be somewhere, to have a position, and you're going to fall to a lower or some other position, right? There's two positions. So we may brush by the fall. Yeah, I understand what it means to fall, but no. Augustine says to truly understand this, to truly understand the fall, you need to understand the absolute height man was at and the depth man fell to. For Augustine, the height we were at, think about the creation of Adam before sin. Created this perfect creation of God in his divine image. Given dominion over all of God's creation. And given, given just one command, right? Which should have been a pretty simple command. 
there's a lot of fruit in the garden. Don't eat this one, right? Lots of options. Should have been a pretty simple command. We were at this height in God's divine image with dominion, walking with God. And through Adam's one choice, we fell. And that fall was the most terrible punishment we could have fallen to. That fall took us from that great height and, and, and placement with God to death and separation. That's the magnitude. That's the impact of the fall. That's where Augustine's coming from with his idea of man is inherently corrupt. Because that fall was not just the fall that, from Adam. That's just not what Adam endured. That is the fall of all of us. The height we were at and the depths we fell to. The point's fundamental for Augustine's theology, and it is completely counter to that of Pelagius. Um, and as we look, right, so man's inherently corrupt, the fall brought condemnation. What does that do for the will? For Pelagius, if we were good and not condemned, we had this perfectly balanced will, right? That was our disposition. For Augustine, evil is weighted down here. We, our disposition is bent towards doing evil. So how can we have free will? If our disposition is toward, of the will is towards doing evil, how can we have will? That's where Augustine comes back in his prayer in this idea that God needs to grant us something in order to do his commands. God needs to grant us something in order to do good. And what that is for Augustine is this idea of divine grace. God provides divine grace to us to allow us to do good because we can't do it on our own. The discussion would pretty much... Uh, consume Augustine for the rest of his, his life and all of his writings. And it became the founding principle for so much church theology for the next thousand years. This position that man is inherently uh, evil, that man is inherently corrupt. And if we go a thousand years after Augustine to the reformers and we look at people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, this is the basis and the foundation of their theology and their teachings. In fact, Calvin, John Calvin and what he taught is, is so similar to Augustine's, Augustine's original principles that the two are kind of used uh, interchangeably, Augustinianism and Calvinism. It's huge. There's a couple offshoots and positions within Augustinianism versus, you know, Scott talked about solidarity. Was Adam just the, the federal headship? Was he just the representation of all of humanity? Or was it a natural headship in where we were all taking part in the original sin? The consequences are the same. But the approach to the, our level of involvement is different. That's the second position. And once again, the scales are important to understand. If we're inherently corrupt... Without God's grace and intervention, we can't choose him. We can't choose good. For Augustine, he, we look at Romans 5, 12, and he looks at this as though it's not individual. This isn't our individual sins that have condemned us. It's our corporate solidarity with Adam in original sin. The third position, the third most prominent position in this happens a thousand years relatively after Augustine, and it's the position of Arminianism. Arminianism basically looks at the position of Pelagius and the position of Augustine, and then of Calvin, and says there's value in both of these. Even looking scripturally, biblically, there's value in both of these positions. Augustine, or Arminianism would look and say, yes, man, the truth is man is inherently corrupt. That sin, right, sin is going to bring death. 
But it looks at the Pelagius side and says, no, there's merit to this in that it doesn't appear as though we should be held. The Bible doesn't seem to teach that we should be held responsible for someone else's sin. I shouldn't be held responsible for your sin. You shouldn't be held responsible for mine. So how does this play with Adam? And even more so, these scales need to be balanced in order for us to have true freedom of the will, for our will to be truly free. But they look at, he looks at the Augustinian position and says, okay, if, if the scales of choosing good or evil are a coin that we just flip and you've got a 50% chance of choosing either one because it, that's in our nature, why has for billions and billions of people over the years the coin always come up evil? If man has always sinned, but we've had the ability not to, there's got to be something to that. And so they understand the merit of the Augustinian perspective. And so Arminius comes with lots of concepts, but the basic thing is in order to bring harmony to these two arguments, he goes to the same direction that Augustine goes in that God has to bring grace. Grace has to get interjected into this equation in order for us to balance the scales. The difference in that comes in what kind of grace. Arminius goes to a special kind of grace that's given beforehand. And it's a grace that's given to all men, and it's a grace that is resistible. Which means if even with this grace that's given to us, if, if we are given grace by God, this grace for all men to choose good, we still have the ability to resist that grace. We have the ability to resist the calling of the Holy Spirit. So for Arminius, he would look back at Romans, and he would look back at chapter 5, and he, in verse 12 here, and he would see Augustine's perspective that, yes, we were all involved in that. We are all inherently corrupt, but God has to intervene with grace. It's the concept of grace itself that separates these two major points of view. So those are the three major positions of the church, major historical positions, and they're still very prominent today within the church, very prominent in different denominations within the three major traditions. Each one of these, Arminianism and uh, Augustinianism are very, or Calvinism are very prominent there. And they have huge impacts. And what we're trying to do today is show you guys the importance of understanding sin and understanding the origination of sin and understanding the impact sin has on us. Rather than trying to put you in a position or draw lines, do you understand what it means? I had somebody after the first service come up to me and I thought it was great. They said, you know, I've talked to people about this before and too often people think of sin just as an individual transaction. It's just what I've done this one time. And they said, if, if we just look at it as the individual transaction, you don't see sin as part of that inherent corruption. As soon as the transaction's over, you forget that you're sinful. You forget it because it's just the transaction and it's gone. And the hard part is if you just forget it and you don't understand the impact of sin, do you understand the impact Christ had in your life? One more point before I hand it back to Scott is I was sitting there listening to the songs as we were singing, and we sang a song that said, lots of songs, but it said, now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. The curse of sin has no hold on me. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Did you sing those words today? Did you sing them, or did they come off your lips as praise, as affirmation of the principle and as a hallelujah that sin doesn't have a curse on you anymore. What was that when you sang? 
That's right. When you took com- communion over here, did you take communion because that's what you're supposed to do? Did you understand the impact that what Christ did on the cross when he was hung there for you, it was because of this sin and how big of an impact that has on all of our lives. Understanding sin and its effects is huge, guys. And it all starts back with Adam, and it comes down to how we interpret Romans chapter 5. And what makes it difficult is when you look at these, when you look at Calvinism, or you look at Augustine, or you look at Arminius, and and other ones, Luther, they're all godly people. They all love the Lord. And and then for a lot of us, I've included myself, it's like, well, which which one should I go to? Like, if they all love the Lord, and and then you get into denominations, Presbyterian, you know, Methodist, Christian Missionary Alliance, whatever, Catholic, it really becomes hard. So what we wanted to do was just to, to stop here at the very end of that survey and just say, hey, look, when you look at Orthodox Christianity across all of those, that spectrum there, that still fall within Orthodox Christianity, what do they all believe and agree on when it comes to this idea of Adam's sin and its impact on us? And so we want to just briefly just touch on those yeah. three points here. Sure. Um, we, yeah, if we can just do that. Yeah, absolutely. That. So what, we talk in theology class on what are you a 10 on versus, you know, a negative 10. It's the scale. And 10 is where you, you stand, and you, it's, it's kind of this absolute belief that, yes, this is true, right? What are the most important things that you can stand on foundationally and believe are true? And, and what are those things? As we read Romans 5, 12, right? There's, there's all kinds of things with predestination and free will and sin and all that, but where, where's the church stand as, a, as this positive 10 that we believe, right? And it's this idea, you read right through here, that sin brings death. Sin is something that exists, and it is sin that brings death. But not just death, right? It's like Scott talked, it's such a bigger concept. It's not, it's not just physical, but it's also a spiritual death. That's something you can be a 10 on. What else? Um, that man, as we read through, that man is inherently corrupt. We are inherently corrupt. That, that heresy of Pelagianism is gone. We are corrupt. That scale is weighted that way. We talk about this. You'll hear several different terms. You'll hear that being our sin nature or the old man, right, that, that is gone. Uh, that you might hear us talk about the flesh. It's all these concepts of our, uh, our, the inherent nature of us and who we are, that we are corrupt. And the third one is this idea that we are all subject to Adam's trespass, to Adam's transgression. We're all subject to the consequences of Adam's sin. We can see that that comes all the way through the rest of Romans 5, right? 18, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. We are all subject to those trespasses. And we're going to talk, we're talking about this, we want to touch on the last minutes that we have so what so this is a a big deal as you go through the bible you see this thing but what is the difference this is a world view and i think that's important for you to understand i mean as as we become christians yeah we kind of get it but you you need to understand this is a world view that has ramifications for how you're going to interact with society This is huge. It's not some small little thing, oh yeah, we kind of believe in sin. This is something that really flies in the face of what this world would claim in other worldviews. And uh, as we were talking, we just touch on that idea of worldview and and just the implication of that. (laughs) 
Yeah, absolutely. So worldviews, we all have a worldview. It's, it's, it's who we are, and it's kind of that lens that we approach all of our life by and, and all of our questions and situations, our family, our jobs, everything. Your worldview determines kind of the answers to the questions that you're being asked. And so your, how you view sin, how you view it, sin's effect on your life affects your worldview. And, and if you read... Romans 5.12, with an understanding of corporate solidarity and inherently corrupt, that we are sinful, and we're all sinful because of some, you know, this involvement with Adam, that's not very popular in today's worldviews. That's not popular at all, because today's worldviews are ones that would say, well, there's no consistent definition of evil, if evil even exists. What's bad for you is bad for you, bad for me, bad for me. Don't tell me what's bad. Don't tell me what's evil. And there's this this worldview that comes along with it, that we have to be ultimately tolerant of everything. This, Romans chapter 5, is not something that says we should be tolerant of everything. No, it says that we are sinful. We are sinners. We have a sinful nature. It's completely opposed to the, the common, the, the big worldviews out there right now. And if you are going to be out living in this world, if you're going to be out in, in work and in church and out in society, and you're going to have this Christian worldview, you would better know what it means to have solidarity with Adam and sin. You better know what it means to say that we are all corrupt and we're all sinful because the world is not going to like that. They're not. But it's so important to understand what that Christian worldview is. And at its very core is what Paul's describing here. And it's our sinful nature. It's the inherently guilty people that we are. Yeah, this world forever has raged against this, right? Because <clears throat> it really is ultimately a resistance of God. So what we experience in America, while it feels new to us or it feels real to us, it's been going on all along. And what typically happens with worldviews is the one who's in power gets to reinforce their worldview. Mm -hmm. And so what you're seeing and experiencing in our culture, what we're experiencing is this is how it comes out. Shame on you for ever telling somebody they're wrong. Shame on you that you would ever think you know right and wrong. Right? It's shame. That's our cultural's weapon right now. It has changed. It used to be a different phrase. Today's culture is shame on you. And, and how many of us are nervous now to even say what we believe out loud? Because we're going to be shamed. It's going to happen. So the question is, are, are you certain about your worldview? Because this has dramatic implications. It, it, it impacts all of society. It impacts how you look at people, how you relate. Now, Christ doesn't call us to come with our worldview and to use power. He doesn't call us to do that. That's not, not the call. We don't have to meet power with power. That, that's not the Christ way, right? But we have to be certain about this. The other piece of this, as you look at this, is if you don't buy into this idea of original sin, it goes back to even what Norm is saying, what then of Christ? Mm. Why are you even here? Why would you even sing a song? Because why would Christ have to come and die? If you, if you believe in the inherent goodness of all people, you have a real problem then with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Amen. 
But when you understand the fall and original sin, and then you see God's movement towards us, I mean, it's the whole theme of the Bible. It starts with the fall of Adam, who, who disperses to all of us, and you see God saying, oh, no, no, but I've got the solution. I am the solution, my life for you, my love for you. And I think it's important as we go through this that we see that there's, there's as we get to Romans 5, and we're going to see this more, it, we wanted to just stop here because we knew these questions would come. But the rest of 5 is really talking about how much greater Christ is. And, and we're going to get to that here next week. But we wanted to stop and just to say, do you, do you know for certain on this? And I realize this is high intelligence, high cognitive, not high intelligence, like you need to be a genius to do this, but it's demanding more thinking in this time about concepts. And if you haven't pushed yourself this way in your faith, like I think a a lot of us, you know, tend to be like, well, okay, what do the experts say? And okay, great, because I don't have time to unpack that baby. That's huge. I would encourage you to say, well, wait a minute, and and seek the Lord on this. Is God having you engage in a season, it's not for the rest of your life, but in this season, where you actually sit down and say, okay, what what do I believe about this? And take a class like what Norm teaches. I know there's big words, and and you may have to look some of them up. I mean, I had to do that. I mean, I had a dictionary, like, of all these Bible words. When I went to Bible, I was like, what? They, I mean, these guys invent words sometimes just to, <laughs> I don't understand that, all right? But it's accessible. It's not something that's impossible for any of us to engage in. But we want all of us to be engaged at this understanding, this basic, basic premise that this is a worldview that has dramatic ramifications on how you view Christ, how you view people, how you view yourself. Let's pray. Lord, in these few moments after and in the days and weeks ahead, Lord, sometimes it's years ahead. I pray that your word in these few moments would remain. And there would be those moments where it come back and it would be something that does ground us in you. Lord, no matter where the prevailing winds Uh, blow in this world. Uh, Lord, no matter the forces that would come against your truth, we thank you for the security there is in your word and the internality of it and the truth it is. Ground us in it, Lord, we pray. Amen.